From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Father's Day is just around the corner, so in honor of the men in our lives, we turn our attention to men's health. On today's program, we'll discuss some common men's health topics with a Mayo Clinic expert. There are symptoms that definitely improve, and then there are symptoms that may improve. The ones that definitely improve are things like anemia, low bone mineral density, erectile dysfunction, low libido. Those are ones that clearly improve. Now, they may not improve by a lot, but they definitely are benefited from testosterone. Also on the program, June means it's time to get outside, which also means it's time for ticks. We'll discuss tick-borne illnesses and how to prevent them. And later on the show, how knowing your numbers can help you get the whole picture on your health. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, we turn the calendar to June this weekend, and that means it is Men's Health Month. Finally. Yeah, time to talk about the guys. <laughs> the purpose of Men's Health Month is to heighten awareness of preventable health problems and encourage early detection and treatment of diseases that affect the male population. Now, for men, prostate health is always a hot topic, and prostate cancer is a concern because, you know, if you're a man and you live long enough, you'll probably get it. The prostate-specific antigen, or PSA test, looks for signs of prostate cancer. But the question is, should all men have the test, and if so, at what age? Here to help us understand PSA screening guidelines is Mayo Clinic urologist Dr. Landon Trost. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Trost. It's good to see you. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you again. Yeah, good to have you, Dr. Trost. Let's hear it for the men of the world, huh, Tracy? <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> so the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force did recently come out with some new recommendations regarding PSA, and there's been some controversy about this over the years. What do the new ones say, and do you agree with them? This is one of those areas that's very controversial, and so you'll always see you know updates or changes in the news. Uh, the recent update was that they changed the recommendation from a D to a C. And what a D means is they discouraged screening previously. So in the past, they said uh, men essentially should not undergo screening for prostate cancer with PSA. Hmm. Uh, this new update is more in alignment with the American Urologic Association guidelines, which is that there's a subset of men who would benefit from screening, and this should be undertaken on a case-by-case basis. Who's in that subset? Yep, so specifically men 55 to 69 were felt to be the ones that most benefit from screening. Uh, those between age 40 and 55 are going to be those only at high risk of it. So those who have a family history or African-American race or something where they have high-risk features. And why did they change their mind, and what was it about the test that they didn't like previously? So no one really knows ever you know, why something changes versus not, but in particular, their statement, they indicated that there were new uh, pieces of data that made them change their mind about screening. So they thought that the benefits outweighed the risks in this smaller population of men. Um, PSA screening in general is very controversial because it's not a perfect test. Uh, It has a lot of uh, false positives where you detect something that may not be a significant cancer. And then even the detection of cancer itself, you have to treat a certain number of men to actually benefit um, a subset. So right now, for example, you have to screen 1,000 men to improve or to extend life of one man. Um, And so it's a matter of are the risks and benefits uh, there. And in particular with prostate cancer, the treatment itself can be can cause some comorbidity. So it can cause you to leak urine. It can cause um, you to have problems with erections. Um, 
you have to get a prostate biopsy, you can get an infection from that. So when you weigh all of these uh, potential risks versus all of the benefits, that's where they try to come up with a general recommendation. Does it spread or does it usually remain contained? What would be the benefit of discovering that prostate cancer early? Yeah, that's a good question. So prostate cancer, it's an extremely slow-growing cancer overall. Uh, so in contrast to like pancreatic cancer or something where it may be three to six months, this is on the order of decades sometimes. Mm. But you're right in that even if prostate cancer doesn't go on to to threaten your life, it often results in a lot of really bad symptoms. So you can get blood in the urine, you can be unable to urinate, you can have pelvic pain, you can have bone pain or other things from metastases. So even though you may actually, you know, expire of something else, prostate cancer itself can can really worsen your quality of life. So and that's part of the argument that urologists have been saying for some time is that not only do we improve survival in a percentage, but we improve the quality of life of a, a larger percentage where you're taking this cancer out early where it can, before it can go on to cause you bad symptoms. I think the uh, Preventive Services Task Force also said to stop screening at age 70. Do you mm-hmm. agree with that? Yeah, and the American Neurologic Association would also, for the most part, agree with that. The one caveat that they say is that uh, they would recommend that it be an individual decision between physician and patient. Typically, someone has to live at least 10 to 15 years longer to get a benefit out of any sort of screening for prostate cancer. So if you have a 70-year-old who may live to 105 and is extremely healthy and running marathons, that's a a completely different category than someone who comes in in a wheelchair on oxygen and and may not have quite the life expectancy. So the um, urologists in general would say that it's still a potential role to screen some of those men, but not necessarily all of them. So tell us again, the recommendation for not getting the test is that uh, people would be concerned about overtreatment. Mm-hmm. Yep. And beyond uh, just the you know diagnosis itself, knowing that you have prostate cancer is a very anxiety producing thing for many people. So even if you say, hey, I'm you know 70 years old and I've got uh, you know 50 to 70 percent chance of having prostate cancer, somehow having that on paper saying that you have prostate cancer makes it, makes you focus very heavily on it. So that may lead you to want to do a treatment, which may end up ultimately causing you more side effects than the cancer ever would have. So in large measure, they say that this should be a discussion before you ever even start screening so that you can make that decision of will you act on the results, uh, depending on the results of the screening. And one of the other things that potentially contributed a little bit to this um, is that the um, actual uh, percentage of men who had metastatic disease and bad symptoms started going up. So ever since the prior uh, recommendation came in to not screen, suddenly you started seeing in your clinics men with much more advanced cancer that would have been caught and treated earlier had it been screened previously. So you always have a pendulum that swings back and forth with anything in uh, in medicine. And uh, now it's kind of centering more around the middle, which is something that you know nearly all cancer societies are starting to agree on for prostate cancer screening. What does watchful waiting look like for someone who has found out that they have prostate cancer but no symptoms? Mm-hmm. So it's variable. Uh, the younger you are, typically the lower the grade cancer of someone who would be on watchful waiting. If you're you know, 85 years old, you may even potentially have really aggressive cancer, and it may be worthwhile just to continue to wait and watch. Uh, on the other hand, if you're 40 and you have it, um, typically the aggressive ones, they would push towards treatment. And usually watchful waiting consists of uh, repeating imaging, sometimes repeating biopsies and repeating blood tests periodically to see either is the cancer now more aggressive or has it started to spread, at which point you may change your mind about doing treatment. If your PSA is elevated, does that dictate that you have a biopsy? 
sometimes that and that's part of the controversy right there psa can be elevated from things that are not cancer so it can be elevated mm. from inflammation from infection or just having a big prostate some men just have you know 10 times the size of a prostate as other men and in those cases uh, you may undergo multiple biopsies you may get even sick from a biopsy where you're hospitalized and it turns out you never had cancer so for many years there uh, people have been focusing on can we find a better thing to screen. Um, are MRIs, for example, a better way to screen? Are there better blood tests? And to date, PSA still remains uh, the best uh, available. So once again, the new recommendations that you agree with are that all men between the ages of 55 and 69 should get a PSA blood test. How often? Either yearly or every other year. And it should be in discussion with your uh, physician deciding, is this appropriate for you to get done? So not necessarily a, a blanket of everybody gets screened, uh, but have a conversation about it to decide, um, would you act on the results and, and do you have the life expectancy to make it worthwhile? And particularly African-American men and also people with a family history should definitely get a PSA? Yep, that's correct. Uh, they've both been shown to be at higher risk of having more aggressive type disease. So they, in particular, should uh, not only screen, but screen earlier than other groups. And then at age 70, it's a uh, discussion with you in, between you and your doctor about whether or not to continue getting it. Yep. The, the buzzword there is shared decision-making. So shared decision-making. You talk about risks and benefits, and you both decide together. Yeah. It's always good when the doctor and the patient agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We've been talking about PSA screening with urologist Dr. Landon Trost. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll tackle another hot topic, testosterone. <laughs> and myth or matter of fact, taking testosterone can increase your risk of getting prostate cancer. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are back uh, talking about men's health because it is, in fact, Men's Health Month, June. Uh, we are with Mayo Clinic urologist Dr. Landon Trost, and we've got a myth or matter of fact. Yes, myth or matter of fact. Taking testosterone can increase your risk for developing prostate cancer. Is that a myth or a fact? Uh, that's a very common question. Um, does testosterone cause prostate cancer? And, and really the answer is yes and no. If you take a... Uh, a boy and you cut out the testicles when they're really young, they will not go on to develop prostate cancer ever. Mm -hmm. um, and that comes from kind of historical uh, examples and literature. But on the other hand, um, in someone who, uh, you know, grows up with normal development um, and you supplement testosterone, it does not cause prostate cancer. Very common myth. People say, oh, it's like adding fuel to a fire. Uh, but it's not the case. Um, testosterone supplementation does not cause prostate cancer. You know, this is a booming industry, isn't it? I, I mean, it, the fountain of youth, increased vigor inside and outside the bedroom. Why would you not take this? Yeah, no, you're right. It's an absolute, uh, very intriguing and alluring concept, I think, to many people. 2017, it was a $5 billion industry. Really? Um, ever since 2000, when direct-to-consumer marketing started picking up, uh, when you look at the graph on this, I mean, it just skyrocketed with uh, therapy. <laughs> and it makes sense. Sure. You know, you have a natural hormone that potentially gives you more energy, makes you more youthful, gives you better sex drive, gives you better uh, sexual performance. Uh, it sounds like a very uh, fountain of youth type drug. So this is not regulated by the FDA, obviously. <laughs> I mean, these are mostly false claims, right? Well, so that's where the controversy comes in. So the FDA in about 1970s or so grandfathered in testosterone as an acceptable therapy, but they had very specific uh, categories of people that they thought should receive it. And this is essentially, you know, men who are born with testicles that aren't functioning. Uh, but especially beginning in the 2000s, we started using it much more for age-related low testosterone. So, 
you know, men have a natural decline in testosterone year over year. And so we started supplementing those who had, you know, low, lower than normal values, um, looking for benefits with it. But it doesn't do much for hot flashes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's the same, the same scenario. Sure. So women's estrogen decreases uh, as they get older, but they have symptoms and you, and you can give them estrogen or hormone replacement therapy and those symptoms tend to go away. And, and we've been told that uh, that's, uh, women are more and more likely to prescribe physicians uh, for women with those symptoms. Testosterone, there aren't any real symptoms for which you can give testosterone and they get better, are there? Well, so it's very vague is the the tricky part. So um, there are symptoms that definitely improve, and then there are symptoms that may improve. Uh, The ones that definitely improve are things like anemia, low bone mineral density or or kind of thinning bones, erectile dysfunction, low libido. Uh, Those are ones that that clearly improve. Now, they may not improve by a lot, uh, but they definitely are benefited from testosterone. The ones that more people seek it for, though, are things like fatigue, uh, decreased energy, decreased concentration. And for those ones, uh, it's unclear if testosterone causes a dramatic benefit. Mm. And part of the issue is it's really hard to um, to gauge that. You can't measure someone's energy level very easily like you can you know, other aspects. Um, so because of that, there's a little controversy around does testosterone benefit uh, those particular groups or not. What percentage of the population has low testosterone? So again, it's another, everything's controversial about testosterone. Mm-hmm. You can't pick a topic that isn't. If you do the most strict possible definition, so there's a study out of Europe um, that where 2% of the people or population would qualify for this. On the other hand, if you take a, a loose definition, so just a low testosterone, um, depending on the age, 50% of men at age 50 all the way up to 80% of men at age 80 would qualify. So it depends on how tight of a definition you choose for it. So do men come in, uh, who gets who gets tested for testosterone? Are most of the people that are taking this, they have no idea what their testosterone is. They just think that it will give them the fountain of youth. Yeah, so there are many conditions that are linked to low testosterone. Um, so, for example, diabetes, obesity, uh, those who come in with fatigue, HIV, there's multiple conditions um, that are linked with low testosterone. So oftentimes, uh, physicians will get a testosterone in that group to see, is this potentially low? And in those men that are low and have those symptoms, those are the ones who tend to benefit from it, whether it's decreased mood um, or anemia or those other symptoms. Is it a totally benign drug? I mean, if if a man decided that he was going to take it, and I guess presume you get it over the counter, um, are there any side effects that you ought to watch out for, or can you take too much? So a lot of good questions there. The uh, as far as maybe the first over-the-counter, if you get it over-the-counter, it's probably not a very safe preparation. Um, so there are forms of testosterone called methylated or alkylated um, testosterone, and those are the ones that are potentially dangerous for the liver. Um, there are no oral forms in the United States that are available of testosterone alone. Um, um, so as one, you know, side comment there. Um, as far as, you know, how can you get this or how do you uh, get it prescribed, uh, typically, uh, it's something that you'd have to have too low testosterone values and have symptoms. And if you meet that criteria, then you're a candidate for uh, supplementation for it. So it's definitely something that should be handled by your physician, that you talk with your physician about, you get the testing done, you make sure that this indeed is a problem and not just a, the way that you are feeling. Yep. No, you're exactly right. The All of the current guidelines recommend that we put people back in the normal range. So uh, of course, one of the common abuses of testosterone is for muscle building um, because it, you know, boosts muscle and it reduces fat. 
but some of the dangers that come with testosterone happen when you uh, supplement to really high levels. So if you're getting to, you know, like excessive weightlifter type levels, uh, that's when we start to see heart attacks and strokes happen at a higher rate. And uh, we did a study a couple years back of um, men in the weightlifting community that were using really high dose uh, androgenic steroids. And we found that uh, they had a much higher rate of new erectile dysfunction and new decreased libido um, that we think was related to them being supercharged for such a long time and then mm-hmm. suddenly coming back down to normal levels and having symptoms. You said androgenic steroids. Same thing as testosterone? or Same thing, but they're derivatives. So uh, in addition to testosterone, there's a lot of different subtypes that many um, men will use for this. But testosterone is kind of the main one, and they're all based around the concept of testosterone. Why mess with it in the first place? <laughs> Why not figure out another way to make you feel better than going through something that could be potentially dangerous, certainly to your liver, if not other situations? Well, almost everything in medicine is trying to mess with the normal process of life uh, to some degree. So trying to extend life, trying to reduce symptoms or improve quality of life. Uh, Men and women are a little bit different, I think, in that when you look at women's hormones, when they hit menopause, there's an abrupt, severe decline. With men, um, even starting as early as 20s, you'll get about a 1% to 3% per year decline. So it's this kind of slow, steady decline. Um, So they, they behave a little bit differently in that regard. Uh, but it is one of those things that, that people are looking for a way to feel more youthful, to have uh, reduction in some symptoms, to maintain a better body um, habitus or body, better body weight. And, and this is one of those things that can potentially impact those. So if you think you might have low T based on easy fatigability, loss of libido, what else? Oh, many yeah, anemia, uh, difficulty concentrating, erectile if dysfunction. If you've got any problems at all, you, you might <laughs> think you have low T, then you should see your doctor. You should have uh, your testosterone checked and discuss with them whether or not it would be appropriate to take testosterone as a supplement, and if so, get a prescription. Don't take anything over the counter. Yeah, that's all very accurate. Uh, Testosterone therapy has a role in appropriately selected men, so men who have symptoms and have a low testosterone. uh, Those are the men that that can consider a trial. Uh, The one key thing there, too, is um, even if you go on testosterone, it's a trial. So if you don't get a benefit in symptoms, come off of it. But if you do notice a dramatic improvement in symptoms, then it's worthwhile to uh, to consider supplementing. All right. Well, what a great start to Men's Health Month of June. We've been talking about prostate health and testosterone with Mayo Clinic urologist Dr. Landon Trost. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Good to be with you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn how to protect yourself from tick-borne illnesses. And later on in the program, the importance of knowing your numbers. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. You're headed out the door for a day of fun in the sun with your family. You grab the sunscreen because you know a sun protection factor, or SPF, of 30 is going to protect your exposed skin from getting sunburned. But Dr. Don Davis, a Mayo Clinic dermatologist, says most people don't know that skin covered by clothing still can get sunburned. She says natural clothing without sun protective factors will have an SPF of approximately 1 to 4, based on how tight the weave is and how breathable 
breathable the material is. So it actually does not give you that much sun protection. But she says there are special types of clothing that will protect you. The clothing industry has now allowed microfibers into certain clothes, which then have a UPF or universal protection factor that's equivalent to the SPF of sunscreen. She says universal protection factor is even calculated the same way SPF is. It's the ratio of the number of minutes you spend outdoors without developing redness to the skin with the clothing on versus without the clothing on. So Dr. Davis says. Says if you can spend 50 minutes outdoors with a piece of clothing before developing mild redness versus 10 minutes without, you would have a protective factor of 50 over 10, which is a UPF of five. So the next time you're shopping for clothes, check the tag to see if it lists the item's universal protection factor. And here's some news about some research Mayo Clinic is doing to help stop a cancer associated with sun exposure: melanoma, the most deadly type of skin cancer. Mayo Clinic Center for Individualized Medicine is learning about melanoma at the molecular level to allow for treatment that better targets an individual's disease. That's because not all melanomas are the same. Every year, about 90,000 people are diagnosed with melanoma, and more than 9,000 people die from the disease in the United States, according to the American. American Cancer Society. The incidence has been rising for the past 30 years, especially among young people. Mayo researchers are working to find better treatments. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives, and I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, it's tick season, and it's time actually to learn how to stop those suckers. <laughs> <laughs> According to a new report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, illnesses caused by disease-infected ticks, mosquitoes, and fleas have tripled in the U.S. in recent years. Lyme disease is the most common illness carried by ticks, but it's not the only one. There's anaplasmosis. Ehrlichitis, what? <laughs> And even Rocky Mountain spotted fever, to just name a few. We'll get to the pronunciation of that in just a second. Well, it must be ehrlichiosis. <laughs> Here to discuss tick-borne illnesses and how to prevent them and how to pronounce them yeah. is Mayo Clinic microbiologist and parasite expert Dr. Bobby Pritt. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Pritt. Thank you. It's great to be here. Did Dr. Shives say that right? He did. Ehrlichiosis. All right. Correct. Why in the world is there a tripling in the amount of diseases from these suckers, as Dr. Shives says? <laughs> well, we have more of them. The ticks are spreading. They're spreading their ranges, and that's、uh, due to a lot of different factors.、Uh, some of it has to do with weather. Some of it has to do with human behavior. A lot of it has to do with hosts, like all those deer and rodents that are out there. They are perfect、uh, reservoirs for the ticks to feed on. Do ticks die over the winter? No, they survive over the winter. They can well, hang out they under、do. the leaves、yeah. and then come out as soon as the snow melts. Is so, Lyme disease still the most common tick? Illness. It is in the country, and particularly in the Upper Midwest and the Northeast. Some three hundred thousand cases a year, right? Yeah, that more than、about? that. Really?、Mm -hmm. But a couple of generations ago, no, I'd never heard of Lyme disease. Is、mm -hmm. it because it had not been diagnosed yet, or because there was no Lyme disease at that point? There was some disease, so it had been diagnosed by then. But there wasn't a lot of it.、Uh, there weren't as many、uh, forested areas where our deer used to like to hang out. 
we used to be more of a farming society. There used to be wider areas that were just open fields for crops. Now we have all these nice wooded areas that the deer just love, the rodents just love. That's a perfect habitat for ticks. And we love to go out into those beautiful green spaces. And, and our behavior also drives this. We want to go out and go for a hike in the woods, and we should. It's just now we have to be aware that those ticks and the mosquitoes and the fleas are out there, and we have to be able to protect ourselves. So we get it from the tick that bit the deer. Yes. Well, actually, it's usually the mouse that it gets it from. So the tick is born not infected with Lyme disease. But then when it bites its first mouse or small rodent, it becomes infected. And then in order to change into its next life cycle stage, it needs to take another meal. And that could be from us. Hmm. Well, what's it, what do deer have to do with it? You know, the deer are actually more of just a, a blood source. They're a food source. The ticks like to feed oh, on deer, but deer themselves actually don't get infected with Lyme disease. Well, it's the mice. We can't blame the deer. <laughs> <laughs> deer are also part of a life cycle, though, for some of the other things like anaplasmosis and ehrlichiosis. When it comes to ticks, is that what the problem is, or what are what are other diseases that ticks spread? Well, as you mentioned, Rocky Mountain spotted mm-hmm. fever, anaplasmosis, there's babesiosis, Borrelia miyamotoi, that's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> um, there's also the two uh, new tick-borne diseases that we identified here at Mayo Clinic, Borrelia mayonii, named after the Mayo brothers, yeah. and also Ehrlichia murus. So there have been nine new pathogens spread by ticks or mosquitoes just identified since 2004. Is one of those the ones that results in an allergy to meat? Yes, that's a, a really odd one, and people get a really bad anaphylactic reaction if they eat meat if they're bitten by a certain type of tick. Amazing. I know. Lyme disease, the most common one. So let's say that you know you have had a tick on your body or you don't. What are the symptoms? What do you look for for Lyme disease? Fever is one, and rash, those are two big ones uh, for all the tick-borne diseases. Is this the rash that, that looks like a target? For Lyme disease, it's that so-called targetoid rash. The problem is, is not all people have that. It could also be in hard-to-see areas, like if it's on your scalp, under your hair, or on your back. That's why tick checks with a friend are sometimes helpful. Uh, have someone look in the spots that you can't easily see. But even if you don't have a telltale rash. If you have other symptoms, you should go to the your doctor. Fever, rash, what else? Uh, you could have body aches, muscle aches. Those are the big ones, joint pains. And then how, uh, if you if you have those symptoms, go to the physician. How do they diagnose it? How do they know if you have Lyme disease? There's a few tests we do. For Lyme disease, we look for antibodies that your body forms as part of its immune response to the organism. So that's called serologic testing. PCR is not a big part of Lyme disease, but we uh, testing, but we do offer it as more of an adjunctive test. For other diseases, we have PCR tests, we have serology, so we have a number of ways in the laboratory that we can detect these blood tests, and they can be pretty definitive. They can, yes. Okay. Are there any advances being made in the battle against the ticks? Yeah, it's interesting that you ask that because there's a whole new tick-borne disease working group that was sponsored by the um, government, which I'm actually on one of the subcommittees uh, working groups, and we are looking at all of those things. What are the gaps in our existing technologies, and then what are 
some of the new technologies that can help fill those gaps. There's a number of different things being looked at. Some will be going through the FDA for approval, but nothing's really here yet. So we're still, unfortunately, relying on technology from the 1970s and 80s, like serologic testing. Well, and the tricky thing is back in the 1970s, for instance, if you were going to go out into the woods, you didn't think twice. Not maybe at the most, you just looked for ticks on your body when you got back. Mm -hmm. But times have changed. And so before you go into the forest or through a walk in a meadow or whatever the case is, what should we do? You have to think about these things. Exactly. If you're going to go out into the woods and you think you're going to go off the beaten trail, you need to be applying some sort of tick or insect repellent. We recommend DEET. Anything with 30% DEET or more, there's also picaridin. Uh, the Environmental Protection Agency actually has a whole list of all the different options. And uh, there's also permethrin that you can spray on clothing. Essentially, the idea is choose what you're going to be using and then make sure you do it consistently. You could also do some simple things like tuck your pants into your socks. <laughs> Less bare skin for those ticks to grab onto. All good, uh, good thoughts. Uh, so you talked to us about the symptoms of Lyme disease. You talked to us about the diagnosis. Now tell us about treatment uh, and if it's important to be treated. And if you don't get treated, uh, or even sometimes if you do, the complications. Yeah, so treatment's important. And if you think you have a tick-borne disease, you definitely want to go to your physician. Some of these diseases are life-threatening. Things like Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, that's life-threatening. In children, in adults, ehrlichiosis can be life-threatening. Usually, the treatment is a drug called doxycycline. Even for children with cases of Rocky Mountain spotted fever, a lot of times we say don't give certain antibiotics like doxycycline to children. That is not the case with Rocky Mountain spotted fever. So usually, antibiotic treatment is required. And most cases, patients will respond if they're treated early. If they're not treated early, uh, complications can arise. Like with Lyme disease, the disease can disseminate. It can go to your joints. It can go to your nervous system. and that Even can be, your heart, right? It can go I mean, to your heart. heart. People have died of Lyme endocarditis. So it's important to find out if you have it, get a definitive diagnosis, and be treated and er, as early on as possible. Exactly. Is it ever too late to undergo treatment? It's less effective. So I wouldn't say it's too late. You'd still want to go to your doctor and see what your treatment options are, but it may be less effective. All right, DEET, 30%. Uh, <laughs> put your pants in your socks. Make yeah. sure your arms and uh, legs are covered. Everybody's doing it, or at least they should be. They should be. Yeah, or stay out of the woods. We've been talking <laughs> about tick-borne illnesses and prevention with Mayo Clinic microbiologist and parasite expert, Dr. Bobby Pritt. Thanks once again for joining us, Dr. Pritt. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Pritt. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn how knowing your numbers can help guide your health and wellness. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Childs. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, when it comes to numbers, we all know that stepping on the scale can be one indicator of our fitness level, how much you weigh. But weight isn't the only measure that can be used to gauge your fitness. To get the whole picture on your health, knowing your cardiovascular fitness level, body composition, and even measures of balance and flexibility can help direct you to an exercise program that will improve your health, wellness, and even your overall quality of life. Here to discuss the importance of knowing all your numbers (laughs) is Dan Gaze, exercise specialist at the Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program. Welcome back to the program, Dan. It's good to see you again. Good, Good to be back. Thank you. Dan Gaze, let's talk numbers. Good to have you on the program. So when it comes to health and fitness, what numbers do we really need and want to know other than weight? 
The biggest one that we need to know is our cardiovascular fitness. There was a landmark study, I believe, in 1999 that listed things that predicted all-cause mortality or whether or not you're going to die earlier than you should. Uh, cardiovascular fitness was the number one predictor. So if you were in better shape cardiovascularly, so if you could do aerobic exercise uh, longer than others in the same age and, and gender range, you're going to live longer. You'll have a better quality of life. So it's important that people know how to get that tested and what to do with that information. All right, and how do you get it tested? <laughs> um, well, here at the Mayo Clinic, we have uh, the Healthy Living Program. That's an area that I work in. And we assess a lot of different physiological variables, one of them being cardiovascular testing, so we use a stress test. We also measure strength using upper and lower body measurements of, of how much weight we could press with our legs or our upper body. Uh, DEXA machine, which is kind of a scary little do uh, vessel to get into, but basically you're laying flat and you're getting a little bit of x-ray over the top of your body. It lets us know how healthy your bones are, but also where fat and muscle is distributed in the body. And there's a lot of research that shows, especially in men, if there's more fat in the abdomen, we're going to have higher instances of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and other things that are going to stick with us throughout our lifespan and ultimately shorten how long we live. Um, the other thing that's important as we age, we lose balance. We lose cognition. And if we can test those things that we do uh, on our regular activities of, of daily living, so sitting down, getting up, um, getting out of bed, the things that we take for granted when we're younger, if we can test that and start to give exercises towards improving those skills and those life skills, then we can have a better quality of life as we as we go on to our 80s and 90s. Does does weight matter at all? Does that number matter at all, or does BMI <clears throat> make a bigger difference? Um, BMI is really good in large population studies. So when you're looking at 30 or 40,000 people to try to get a gauge of what everyone's level of obesity or leanness is, it works really well. It's a very simple equation. And tell us what it is. So it's, it's a ratio of height to weight. And typically we think of 25 as the ideal number, but it varies because I'm six foot four and I weigh 210 pounds, but I'm obese because of my size and my frame. If you get more specific information, like with a DEXA scan, you can look at muscle mass. That's a better predictor of whether or not you're going to be actually lean. Your BMI categorizes you as obese. Or are you just using that as an example? No. It really does? It does. And when I go to the primary care provider, when they do the height and weight, I get a handout on how to maintain healthy weight as part of just an algorithm. Oh, my goodness. Well, yeah, so. it's, a, it's a formula. And mm -hmm. it's you, you can either do it in pounds or kilograms and then meters or inches, mm -hmm. um, and you divide it out, put your numbers into the formula, and it tells you what your BMI is. Yeah. Yours is probably 21. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I don't I mean, know. That's good. This is a 20, number I need you, to find out. Yeah, I mean, it's like having your blood pressure less than 120 <laughs> over 80. If, you're, if your BMI is less than 25, that's good. Okay. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the people, the, some of the people that you see on the street, unfortunately, have a BMI of 40 or 45, and... What is it? Thirty is obese, and forty is hugely obese. Yeah, yeah. Uh, morbidly obese. But morbidly they've changed obese, the categories yeah. to be class one, class two, and class three, rather than having just obese and morbidly obese. Uh, what about body composition? Is that does that matter? It does. Um, we really need to know how much of our body's skeleton is holding on to lean muscle tissue, or which is, what is fat, what is abdominal fat, what is visceral fat throughout our body. Those that have more lean muscle tissue tend to burn more calories at rest because they've got a large amount of lean tissue that needs to use calories. So folks that have more lean tissue tend to be leaner. They tend to have better body composition or lower body fat percentages. When it comes to balance and flexibility that you had mentioned before, do you 
continually test that? You get the first time is just a baseline, or you you said you then give exercises to try try to improve balance and flexibility? So everything we do is a baseline unless we've seen people come back to us before. The nice thing is with balance and flexibility, like a lot of other variables, no matter how old or young you are, you can always improve upon it. Uh, We do very simple things like standing on one leg, eyes open, eyes closed, so a very static test of balance. But if you don't do well, you can practice that at home while you brush your teeth or while you do some some of the tasks, wash the dishes, things like that. So there are small improvements we can make, but as we improve, we can then improve our exercise program, and we're also decreasing the risk of things like falling, which is a huge risk or a huge interest for folks as they age. All right, so tonight when you brush your teeth on one leg with your eyes closed, see how it goes. I'll try. back to us. I'll give that a try. (laughs) So how long does it take you to do all these tests, and then what do you do with the information? How do you come up with a plan? So we work in tandem with a physical therapist and then a physician that we have at the Healthy Living Program. It takes about four hours. So we can go through all these tests in four hours, take the information, and put together a very well-rounded exercise program before they leave. So typically folks come in to us at 7, and they're done by 11.30 with an exercise program in hand. Is this an exercise program that they can pretty much do at home, or do they need to go to some <clears throat> fitness center or athletic center to be able to do what you're going to prescribe? We let them tell us where they're going to exercise, and we build the program around it. Really? So in our facility uh, above the Dan Abraham Healthy Living Center, we have a gym that basically mimics anything you could find in a hotel, a corporate gym, commercial gym, or even home gym. So we don't want to give people unrealistic things that they need to come back to Rochester for. We want to give them something they can do, something that's easy to do, and something that they can take with them wherever they go. So you have alternatives to barbells, for exactly. example. If you if you suggested to somebody who was getting a little bit older that they do strength training, you could show them, show them some things that they could do at home without weights and barbells. Without weights, body weight is a great form of, it's, a, it's the most portable exercise machine we have because <laughs> we're always with it. Um, but things like exercise bands, things that don't take up a lot of space, uh, suspension training is a very big thing now because it's portable and you can hook it to a hotel room door, but it's a very humbling exercise because it's your body suspended and you're just pushing against your own resistance. So it's, it's a very cool thing. A lot of people gravitate towards it. But everything that people want to do, we can help them do, and we can help them do it in the time and the space that they need. Around the country, we're on a lot of radio stations, so not everybody can come to Rochester to the Healthy Living Program mm-hmm. So first of all, they can go to their area physician and ask for some of these numbers more than just like their blood pressure or their weight. Is is that a good idea that people should do? They should, and and if they're worried about improving their physical fitness or worried about improving their health and they don't think that, for example, BMI matches with their body composition, they can ask or they can find a a local fitness facility. And and most fitness facilities do these types of testings in one way or another. but also any kind of medical facility like we have here at Mayo Clinic, a a research institution, should have access to some of these tests. We've been talking with exercise specialist Dan Gaze about the importance of knowing your numbers to help you get on the right track to health and wellness. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio, or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at newsnetwork.mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. 
You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.